Hello and welcome back to TransUnion Data Strategies and Trust podcast series. These podcasts are produced to help listeners better understand the ever-changing data and technology landscape. I'm your host, Mark Reed, a Cyber Incident Response Specialist and the head of TransUnion's Global Incident Response Business in the UK. TransUnion is a global information and insights company that make trust possible in the modern economy. We do this by providing an actionable picture of each person so they can be reliably represented in the marketplace. As a result, businesses and consumers can transact with confidence and achieve great things. We call this information for good. In the UK, TransUnion is a leading credit reference agency, and we offer specialist services in fraud, identity and risk management, data breach solutions, automated decisioning, and demographics. Our solutions across the globe help create economic opportunity, great experiences, and personal empowerment for hundreds of millions of people in more than 30 countries across the world. In the data breach solution space, my colleagues and I are specialists in privacy, cyber incident response, forensics, and data breach fulfillment solution. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the cyber cosmos with two fantastic guests that I'm delighted to have join us today. George Chasty is returning to the TransUnion podcast following the success of our episode last summer. George is a partner at Kennedy's in their cyber and data risk team. I'm also delighted to be joined by Cameron Carr, who has recently joined Mullen Coughlin, a Pennsylvanian-based cybersecurity law firm, as a partner to lead their exciting expansion into the UK. Perhaps we could kick things off today by asking you both to give us a little bit more detail on yourselves and your experience. George, let's start with you. Thanks, Mark. And hi, Cameron. My name is George Chasty. I'm a partner at the law firm Kennedy's, as you've mentioned, which is where I specialize in cyber incident response, advising both on national data breaches in the UK, as well as multinational incidents impacting many countries, drawing on our network of amazing data protection lawyers across 76 offices all over the world. Thanks again, Mark, and great to be invited back on. And Cameron? Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here as well. Um, as Mark's already mentioned, I'm a partner at Mullen Coughlin, which is a US law firm, and I'm currently leading their UK expansion. I use Mullen Coughlin's collective experience in responding to nearly 4,000 data privacy incidents a year and leverage that to support our clients, both on the, the incident response piece and also the wider insurance side at the same time. It's really great to be here. I really enjoy talking about cyber, so I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in. Thanks, Karen. During this episode, we're going to unravel the cyber trends and biggest learnings for our guests from 2023, a year that once again was marked by more unprecedented cyber challenges. Our guests are going to guide us through the highs and lows, shedding light on the legal battles that shape the digital narrative. From high-profile data breaches to evolving regulatory landscapes, we're going to navigate the twists and turns of 2023 in cyber incident response. We'll also be setting our sights towards the end of the podcast on what's to come in 2024. So what lies on the horizon for TransUnion clients and businesses across the UK and indeed globally? Our guests are going to share their predictions and perspectives on the emerging trends that will shape the legal response to cyber threats this year. From advancements in technology to new legislative landscapes, we'll unravel the threads of the future together. But it's not just about data and regulations today. We're going to delve into the human side of cyber warfare, and our guest and I will unravel a recent study that explored the psychological impact of ransomware on both business employees and data subjects, the emotional toll, the aftermath. We want to navigate those uncharted waters, in many cases, of the human psyche in the face of digital extortion. 
But before we dive in, a very quick reminder to listeners, if you find these discussions intriguing, please don't forget to use the links in the episode description box to follow myself, George and Cameron on LinkedIn, or visit our respective websites for more information. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to begin with a look back to 2023. And I seem to sit here at the start of every year and talk or blog around the global threat landscape changing. And 2023 was no exception. Last year saw the emergence of state-aligned threat actors as a new and emerging threat to critical national infrastructure, the continuance of the Russia and Ukraine conflict, and growing concerns about the potential risks from AI. Ransomware remains a huge risk facing the UK, with the National Cybersecurity Centre recommending all businesses take action to protect themselves from the growing threat. Stealing and encryption data continue to be a primary tactic for cyber criminals. However, data extortion attacks are a growing trend in the threat landscape. The National Cybersecurity Centre also found that more than 80% of all reported UK fraud in 2021 was cyber-enabled, but just 32% of UK citizens thought they were likely to become a victim. So at this point, I'd like to open the floor to our guests to get their perspectives on 2023, what trends perhaps you found in your respective roles, and uh, possibly build on some of what I was just speaking about in respect of ransomware and the approach of threat actors evolving, perhaps in some cases that we've worked on together, where we've seen they've become more aggressive. George, should we start with yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start off by slightly setting the scene in terms of what we've seen in 2023. I think after a well-publicized and I suspect much welcome dip in cyber attacks in light of the Russia-Ukraine war, as you've mentioned, 2023 then saw, by all accounts, a significant uptick. Again, not just in ransomware, I should say, which tends to dominate the the headlines, but in all the various forms of, of cyber attacks. What we're seeing here at Kennedy's and what I gather Cam has been seeing too from from our discussions is not only an increase in the numbers of reported incidents, almost as you track it month on month in 2023, but also the methods of attacks have evolved fairly drastically. And I suspect that's something that your listeners would have heard every year for the years gone by and will continue to hear. But the methods have evolved in some fairly specific ways. And I'm sure we can get into some of the more granular detail on the trends that we've seen. But the development, I would say, most worthy of mentioned here right from the get-go is the rise of the supply chain attack. And that came to the fore in 2023 when the ransom group COP managed to expose a vulnerability in the file sharing platform MoveIt. Some of your listeners may have never heard of it prior to the incident, but I'm sure many of them have heard of it since, because it allowed that group to steal huge swathes of data, which not only impacted the developers of that software and in all the ways that you would imagine, but also the thousands and thousands of both primary and secondary victim organizations who either use that platform day to day or simply receive data through the platform from a third party. Now, I know when I was here in the summer, I said the same thing. I'm very cautious of terrifying those listeners responsible for cybersecurity. And I'll say the same thing again. But what these supply chain attacks have highlighted is that as if it's not hard enough ensuring your own systems are secure, you're also now expected to police the security of each of your third-party supplier systems too. And that's something those in both IT and typically in sort of more procurement-facing roles should be thinking about very carefully. 
as I say, there's plenty of more specific trends we can talk through, but I might pass the mic to Cam at that point just to see if his experience matches my own. Thanks, George. Um, yeah, I certainly think we've seen a rise in those type of supply chain incidents. It obviously wasn't the first, um, and I don't think it will be the last at the same time. But I think, interestingly, we got a glimpse of what the the Move It incident was going to be like with the, the Go Anywhere event earlier on in the year, which was exploited by a similar threat actor and a similar issue. Um, and I think that really does generate these kind of supply chain pieces where you haven't just got a vendor that their breach is impacting one downstream client, that that breach then impacts a further downstream client. And we were working with third-party victims, fourth-party victims, and fifth-party victims. And I think some carriers are still getting claims in now for the event itself. So it has quite substantial ramifications across, across the insurance industry as well. I think Mark has already touched on as well the aggression we've seen with threat actors. And I think that that's been quite clear with some of the threat actor groups we've seen over the past six to nine months where they really are turning up the dial on their intimidation tactics, which includes contacting CEOs, sending flowers to organizations with deeper sympathy cards, and then also just trying to push on the victims themselves as well. So we have found that threat actors are utilizing mechanisms for publicity. So they are making more of a scene when they're publishing data when it comes from a ransomware attack. And they're also using laws and regulations and trying to exploit that at the same time. We have the new US SEC rules that have come out this year that require a reporting of a, of a cybersecurity incident as part of their material disclosure piece. And we've seen threat actors try to exploit that by reporting incidents to the SEC directly rather than the organizations themselves. So really turning up the dial on the on the aggressive tactics. Uh, the good news is that the government, I think, has been responsive to some of this. And in September, we saw 11 Russian criminals being added to the sanctions list, all of whom were allegedly members of TrickBot or Conti that were quite a prolific ransomware group during the past couple of um, couple of years. So it's good to see that the government is starting to respond with quite substantive steps. So we've obviously talked about third-party incidents as well. I know that we've also seen uh, an increase on last year on the number of both ransomware incidents and business email compromises. So those ones that are really hitting the victims themselves. George, have you seen any increase in particular sectors or or areas that you think have been almost more targeted than they were uh, a couple of years ago? Thanks, Cam. I think mentioning business email compromises is, is a really good idea because, as I said earlier, the, the headlines tend to be dedicated by ransomware and it's often forgotten, as you'll have seen, Cam, as well. BECs, um, the acronym for business email compromise, can get incredibly expensive too. So in terms of that targeting that you mentioned, I think it tends to be more from a business email compromise perspective, whilst the attacks tend to be scattergun in nature because they send out a whole raft of phishing emails, typically in hopes somebody clicks. When they know that they've gained access to a mailbox in a finance-facing role in particular, so professional services, they tend to think that they're onto a bit of a winner and they will often spend longer in that mailbox than they might in others. And we dealt with an incident not all that long ago where within 
around six hours of initial access to that mailbox, completely undetected for that first six hours. They'd managed to work out a way of stealing 1.4 million, just over that amount, in such a short space of time, simply because of the access to the mailbox in question and their role as the authorizer of payments going out the door. And that access was leveraged in a way that the um, threat actor couldn't have imagined, I suspect, when they're initially deploying their attacks. So I think with each cyber attack form and there will be an element of targeting another cyber attack type that we've not mentioned but Cam you and I discussed in prep for this is resurgence of payment card skimming naturally that's going to be impacting those in the retail industry and e-commerce industry perhaps more than others but I think just general awareness of all the various different cyber forms is well worth making sure that those listening are on top of irrespective of industry because ransomware in particular can be fairly indiscriminate. Thanks, George. I think that, and and you made a fair point, actually, our incident types that we track 2020 and 2021 ransomware was the most prolific, and we saw quite a significant amount of ransomware. And then going to 2022 and 2023, BECs came back to the forefront as those incidents that we were dealing most with. One of the challenges we still see from business email compromise is that the threat actors will leverage certain tactics to get hold of a mailbox or get access to a mailbox so that they can then start spoofing the individual who owns that mailbox. But the challenge with that is where they use things like legacy protocols, so POP3 and IMAP, that also generates an issue where they're synchronizing the mailbox outside of the environment. And under certain regulations, including the GDPR, that may give rise to a personal data breach. So we are finding that the costly element that sits with that mailbox is whilst a threat actor is targeting wire transfer, they're trying to force someone into transferring money to a different bank account or to a different entity. The other aspect is it gives rise to quite a significant review of personal data because the mailbox may be synced. And sometimes we see that with a CEO for a small business, an HR director, for example, a finance director that has a lot of employee onboarding. And that gives rise to quite a significant lift from the organization to review all that data and significant legal cost. And then that in turn, when we get to notification, instead of ransomware, where it is pretty obvious that data may have been exfiltrated, in those circumstances, you're having to write to an individual to say, there was a mailbox fraud, some of your data may have been impacted as part of that incident. And it's quite difficult to kind of manage that when we're notifying individuals. But I mean, George and I could talk about BECs till the cows come home. I think we both cut our teeth on BECs really before ransomware was a big issue in in this cyber insurance market. But I know that Mark desperately wants to talk about ransomware. So I'm going to hand it back to Mark to uh, flag some points on the RUSI report. Thanks. We will, as I promised, look ahead to 2024 and the things that businesses in the UK should be cognizant of. But we do want to look into the psychological impact of ransomware specifically, something that all three of us on the episode today are extremely interested in. And to build on what Cameron was just speaking about there in respect of RUSI, yeah, the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, who are the world's oldest and the UK's leading defense and security think tank, released a paper which focused on the harms to individuals, organizations, and society because of ransomware. And as we heard already today, ransomware incidents do remain a persistent threat. I'm going to talk in a short time about psychological harm on the individuals that are indirectly impacted by a ransomware incident, described in the report as secondary order harms, which is perhaps a personal forte of mine. But I do want to get the thoughts of our guests on those first order harms. Each of us have now had an opportunity to review the paper in full, and it's extremely detailed. 
So I'd like to ask our guests to collectively provide us with their thoughts on some of the key findings related to those first order harms, which are those that impact the organization directly and their employees that have been directly targeted by a ransomware operation. George, should we start with yourself? There's a phrase in cyber that if you ever get first pick for cyber podcast bingo, which I know we all play, you'd win every single time. And it's not a case of if, but when. And of course, what we mean by that is it's not a case of if, but when a cyber attack might happen. And that's intended to trigger a bit of a mentality shift to those listening that might not think cybersecurity is is worth investing in at all or as much as is being suggested. What the report and the study that you've referenced does brilliantly in my mind is move us to a point where we're extending that mantra to when that cyber attack happens, which it will, here are all the terrible consequences that might arise, not just for your business, but your staff, their families, your clients, the wider society, and potentially even more broadly, the UK economy and national security even. All those things can be true if an organization is hit by ransomware and they don't respond effectively. Now, with first order harms, as you've mentioned, and I think that's where Cam and I are going to focus, we're talking here about the impact of ransomware on the victim organization and the staff involved principally. And speaking to as many CISOs and IT professionals as you tend to do in this line of business, I suspect that those responsible for putting together a business case for cybersecurity have been crying out for a study like this. And I wouldn't be surprised, frankly, if it wasn't being circulated for C-suite consideration up and down the country as we speak. And I think that's in large part because unless you've been through a ransomware attack, it's hard to know exactly what to expect. What the study does a brilliant job of is teasing that out, particularly when it comes to those first order harms around the impact on the organization and the people sitting within it. Worth bearing in mind that very often it is the IT team that bear the brunt of the work in response to an incident. And they can unfortunately, but perhaps um, understandably, be a bit of a perception that they're responsible initially, because do we have sufficient cybersecurity measures in place initially? And then further down the track, then blame too, if the organization isn't back up and running as quickly as those within the organization might hope. And so I suspect that the report is likely a bit of a breath of fresh air for those in that role in highlighting the psychological and the physical impact in particular, but also reminding the C-suite of the importance of investing in cybersecurity in the first place. Thanks, George. And I think actually what's interesting in the report itself is that, just quoting directly from it, is that the authors have said psychological harm can reach far beyond the immediate response to a specific incident affecting an individual's wider professional life and impacting their personal life. And I think we do forget this in respect of incidents and how they are being managed at the moment. It is at the start of the incident, all hands to the pump. It really is, especially in, this, in respect of ransomware, where you find an organisation is hard down Everyone's trying to fix it as quickly as possible. Um, those who work with me in the wider industry know I like my analogies. And I try to explain to some of our clients that unfortunately ransomware feels like a car accident, that you feel like it happens in an instant and therefore you should be able to remediate it in an instant. But what you have is post-accident, you have to call the recovery company. You have to get the recovery company out to the side of the motorway. They have to take it to a repair shop. They then have to 
assess the damage, fix the damage. Like it takes a lot longer than the actual incident itself. And I think that's what drives a lot of the psychological impact on individuals because we've been on calls as incident responders. Um, I managed an incident over the summer where we were doing 18-hour days with clients and you know, they were just going back, going to sleep, coming back into the office. Those who are missing out on time with their loved ones, they're missing out on time to support their partner with their children, for example. They're worried about what the professional risk is to them as an individual. Like, will they get fired at the end of it? Which is often a a real challenge in how we have to manage some of these incidents. We really do have to kind of pull back from that pointing fingers and that blame game. Because, for example, for a CISO or an IT professional, they're concerned that their own job is on the line. So I think that kind of wider mental health impact is really, really challenging. And I think we also think about that just in the context of the professional sector. But George and I have dealt with multiple incidents at schools, hospitals, medical organizations, you know, those that have a real direct relationship with their kind of users or, or, or individuals. And so we've managed incidents where schools can't bring the kids in to teach them. And that's just as COVID was coming out of out of really being in society, we were seeing kids going back to school and then suddenly they were locked down again because they couldn't go into school because it wasn't safe. So I think that wider piece of that kind of impact on the psychological health of those individuals is really important. And often, you know, we as incident responders can come into an incident and sometimes just stopping and grabbing that kind of that that empathy and really understanding how our clients are being impacted by this incident and what's really challenging for them at the moment. Because for some, it could be a straightforward fix, but actually it's really stressful because they've been through an incident before. For others, it could be that they are just going to go through a substantive merger with another school or something like that, and they're worried that that will drop away. Or equally, in some cases, it's focused on risk to life or risk to personal safety. We both managed incidents that we've been on together where there is a significant risk of harm to the individuals that includes up to actual risk to life. So that's another important thing that I think we forget about with regards to ransomware. Thanks, Cam. And there's a couple of examples, I think, that help tease some of those concepts out quite nicely. One is the risk to life point. Um, we dealt with an incident really um, recently for a hospice that was taken completely offline. And as if it wasn't tough enough for those giving the end of life care that they couldn't access the medication lists that they needed and the information from the doctors that they needed in order to provide that care. But within a day, the threat actor has started making direct contact. We talked about the aggression on some with some of these threat actors earlier. They made direct contact, not just with those in the C-suite at the hospice, but with the nurses themselves who are frantically running around trying to deliver care. So that is bound to have a huge, huge impact. The other point you mentioned was around the blame game. And probably the the toughest incident that I've dealt with on a personal level was when we jumped on a call Teams meeting within minutes of awareness of IT disruption, as we often do for a big multinational conglomerate. And even remotely joining that meeting, you could tell that there was something slightly different to this incident than there had been for others. You could sense the tension in the room, um, even on Teams. And it became apparent really quickly that the IT director had already faced a grilling before joining the meeting with the legal team and the other vendors. It transpiring that this poor chap was being held entirely responsible, even before the forensic investigators had had an opportunity to assess root cause. And it's probably not a surprise to know that on day one, that same IT director 
director went off with stress and actually never, as far as I'm aware, went back to the company. So what's doubly unfortunate is that not only did the investigation reveal this was what's called a zero-day incident, I don't want to get too technical, but effectively the investigation confirmed that there was nothing that the IT director could have done to prevent the incident in the first place. But because such little resourcing had been dedicated to cybersecurity, it meant that that same IT director um, had a huge amount of information that only they had and it was in their head. So with the IT director away, not only did the organization recover much more slowly than they would have done with them around, but it also cost a huge amount more because they had no choice but to parachute experts in to fill that same role. So that's the, the knock-on effect that that psychological impact can then have on the financial impact that then has more of a psychological impact. And it can become fairly cyclical if it's not dealt in the right way from the outset. I think it's a good time for me to come in and discuss the second order harms, those that impact the consumer further down the line. Data breaches are, of course, commonplace in the digital world we live in today, and incidents impact everybody, regardless of demographic characteristics, which in the majority of cases, I think it's fair to say, isn't a concern of the threat actors. We think about media outlets that run stories on incidents every day, and the stories that we see tend to focus on the consequences to the businesses rather than those second-order harms. I think it's probably true that consumers do take part from the fact that data breaches are a daily occurrence. But that said, with an ever-increasing number of incidents happening and the number of IoT devices online growing, the risk of a cyber attack is growing simultaneously. And therefore, the reality that the fact the consumer could have done nothing to stop an incident happening and from their personal data becoming compromised probably only provides limited consolation. And what I found refreshing about the Rusi study is it moved away from those all too frequent studies and reports that we're used to seeing on the impact of data breaches on the immediate cost to businesses, the post-breach management fines from the regulator and impacts on, on profits. And what it highlights is that breaches can have a long-term impact on the relationship between customers and brands. And data breaches do create a very real risk of identity fraud. And as consumers are contacted more and more about data breaches impacting personal information, their confidence in businesses weaken. There is emotional turmoil and paranoia that become a very distinct possibility. There is, of course, stress and fear, anxiety, often confusion, and of course, um, a very real sense of anger. And then subsequently, when the individual does suffer from identity theft resulting from the compromise of their data, their time is greatly consumed in managing the fallout of that. There's a potential for individual financial loss on top of the fraud, like legal expenses in the most serious cases, perhaps childcare expenses, or where they've had to take time out of work. There is the, a risk of, of extortion for additional ransom payments, and even the payment of benefits for, for certain individuals being disrupted. And whilst there's a legal obligation to notify those impacted by a breach without undue delay, the evolving approaches of cyber criminals do create more pressure for public notification. But if done correctly, those notifications via email or post can actually help to remove some of that heat out of the situation and alleviate some of those psychological impacts that, that I reference. That could, of course, include offers to help mitigate the impact to those impacted, like the offer of, uh, of credit monitoring solutions like True Identity from, from TransUnion. One of the key things to point out, when the ICO announced their significantly reduced fine for BA, British Airways, several years ago now, that was reduced from £163 million, which was the notice of intent, down to £20 million. 
And one of the mitigating factors called out in the written judgment was that was due to the dedicated support put in place for the affected data subjects, which considered how their loss and distress could be mitigated. And indeed, they did offer a free credit monitoring service. Providing monitoring like true identity is a powerful tool that gives confidence to those who have had data exposed in a data breach. And very proactively offering this, businesses are able to demonstrate that they're taking the loss of data seriously and taking steps to, to minimize the potentially harmful consequences of the incident. That can reduce reputational damage, help restore trust, and is a really good starting point in illustrating the proactive steps that consumers can take to mitigate these potentially harmful consequences of ransomware attacks, which of course show no sign of slowing down. Uh, to finish the episode today, we do want to, as promised, look at the landscape for 2024 and what businesses should be focusing on according to our expert guest today. I do have a few questions on this, but to start with, I'd like to ask our guests what emerging cyber threats that they foresee becoming more prevalent in the year ahead. And perhaps we'll start with you, Cameron, this time. I think that we will still, and as we've seen with the AnyDesk incident over the weekend, I think we will still see these kind of large-scale type breaches that impact a lot of different organizations still becoming more prevalent. I think they become far more profitable for the threat actors long-term. And I also think it will be interesting to see how that also manifests itself in the market with regards to both how the insurance industry is responding, but also how, for example, threat action negotiations are undertaken when you know you have multiple negotiations ongoing in respect of the same incident at the same time. So I think that's going to be quite a significant point. Picking up on the point that you made about credit monitoring as well, I do think that we will see a lot more kind of customers looking to provide those types of solutions. And I think the credit monitoring falls as one piece of that puzzle because really where we see the litigation arise or the risk of litigation are those individuals that fall through the cracks. And so historically, we would see some of our clients just say, great, well, throw a credit monitoring code on every single notification letter and that's it, we're done. But more kind of around now, the kind of longer term support platform as you'd identified through British Airways. So things like call center support, things like FAQ responses, additional offers for support that, that can be provided. So we're seeing clients offer things like employee assistance programs to provide counseling to staff members who have been impacted. I think we will see more of a shift towards this kind of holistic approach to notification and then the support afterwards, whereas historically we've seen that kind of we're just going to drop a notice letter and we're just going to run away from the issue after that. That's us done. We're finished. We're tired of the incident. I think there is going to be a far more longer holistic approach that we will see. And I think the other side is, I think the threat actors will get more aggressive than they will slow down. I think as we see more interest with the government, the threat actors may be backed into a corner to a degree and really start coming out fighting with some of the tactics that they want to exploit. We've already seen that this year, um, but I think there will be more focus on how they can manipulate both the, the individuals within an organization and also manipulate the customers outside of the organization to leverage the largest extortion that they can do. Because at the end of the day, they're just trying to make money. That's really what we need to think about is that they are trying to make money above everything else. So if they can employ tactics that can help leverage that, then I think they will use them. George, could I get some further comment from yourself on, on the same question around emerging cyber threats that you foresee becoming more prevalent? Absolutely. And I would echo everything said about the holistic approach that consumers, but also regulators are coming to to expect to see and, and hear about. And I think 
take that um, a step further, I suspect what we will start to see is a shift in emphasis from that holistic approach being expected on a reactive basis post-incident, but actually much more being brought into a pre-incident strategy whereby any company, and I suspect particularly on the larger end of the scale, the bigger SMEs and the bigger household name companies, them all knowing what their strategy is in that respect and being able to present that strategy long before an incident. So the takeaway for those listeners being get to know your experts long before an incident, know that you guys are aligned and and will work well together early, but also just to streamline the process in the event of an incident, whether that is providing credit monitoring, identity monitoring, or frankly, any of the other strategies around communications. On the wider perspective in terms of trends on the ground, I think there are a couple of examples that I could give that are probably true of any year, like the further evolution of ransomware methods, more supply chain attacks is obviously a continuation of what we've already discussed. Increased use of AI is something that is always a hot topic. But a couple of quick things that have occurred to me as potentially being sort of more 2024 specific, and those are increased website hijacking or online portal interceptions. So we talked about payment card skimming. That's something that happened quite a lot in years gone by, went out of fashion for whatever reason for a long time, but seems to have had a bit of an uptick recently. But actually, in terms of the possible future trend, when you think about the potential for injecting yourself in as a threat actor to a restaurant or a hotel booking platform, for example, you can see how those threat actors might be able to leverage that access to then coax people into paying fabricated deposits or otherwise. Again, something that we see bits of, but not perhaps as its own standalone cyber attack method. The other trend that I'm sort of seeing for the next year is actually a blurring of the two attack types that we've spent a huge amount of time talking about already, which is ransomware and business email compromises. And what I mean by that very quickly is those attackers previously focused entirely on business email compromises, actually upskilling and using their initial access to an employee's mailbox to then allow for lateral movement more broadly within the environment to be able to do the things that we typically see with ransomware. So sorry, there's such gloomy predictions. I'd like to be able to give much more positive outlook on how things are going to improve. But the reality is that the way that these attackers evolve their tactics are such that actually, really, it's about getting ahead of the curve and working out what they might be doing next in order to try to prevent it. George, can I add one positive spin on this that I think is quite interesting, just to save us all from the doom and gloom and the um, heavy cloud that sits over us in the cyber industry. I I do think that one of the sides that I've seen this year has been that individuals are far more aware of how these attacks happen and are far more aware of their own cyber cyber security and, and profile. I mean, historically, a few years ago, when we were notifying people about business email compromises, ransomware incidents, exfiltration, I think that we were seeing a lot more questions from people. They were really confused about what it meant, didn't really know what the dark web was and things like that. But I feel like there's a a significant level of maturity, I think, from the public that we're notifying now where they do understand a little bit more about cyber. Maybe that's because it's in the news more. Maybe, unfortunately, it's because we've had more incidents. But I think that, you know, we are seeing people who are proactively using their credit monitoring that are, you know, talking in quite mature terms on what the cyber risk looks like. And I think that really is helping with the kind of notification process and how the organizations are able to support those individuals as best they can. So I think it is doom and gloom on the the threat actor side. But I also think the kind of positive spin at the moment is that cyber is far more at the top of the agenda for newsrooms, the public at large, and also the government, which I think is really helping that conversation on a lot of different facets. So I think that's definitely a positive. 
Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode of the TransUnion podcast. My huge thanks to George and Cameron for joining me today. For more information on TransUnion's data breach solutions, please visit our website or find myself, George, and Cameron on LinkedIn for more information on our respective businesses, TransUnion, Kennedy's, and Mullen Cogburn. Thank you for listening. See you again soon. This podcast was produced by TransUnion, a global insights and analytics company. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of TransUnion, and TransUnion is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.